Hey friends, welcome to RUF. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Sammy. I'm the campus minister here. And if you've been with us this semester, you know that we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' Jesus's, uh, most famous sermon, uh, and we're reading in the Gospel of Matthew. And tonight we're coming to Jesus' take to us on the law, the law of Moses. Essentially, the law is recorded in the Old Testament. And we're just going to kind of look at what Jesus has to say to us about how he relates to the law and how he is calling us to relate to his law. But let me read the passage for us and I'll pray for us and we'll jump in. So we're in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us and we're going to kind of dive in and unpack some pretty hard and confusing words from Jesus. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to guess what it is that you're like. Uh, You've not left us to figure out what it is, what kind of life with you that you've called us to and are empowering. Um, Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you have given us this word. And Lord, I I pray tonight as we look at, Lord Jesus, some, some challenging words from you. Lord, we know that Often your words to us are words of comfort, and often your words to us are words of challenge, and that challenge is meant not to break us in ways that would leave us by ourselves, to leave us all alone, but to break us in all the ways that we need to draw us more and more into your heart. Um, For us to know in and of ourselves we have no hope, but Lord, you have come for us, and you are the Savior of the hopeless You are near to the brokenhearted. So, Lord, would you do the thing that you alone can do by your spirit? Would you disturb us where we're too comfortable? And, Lord, would you you comfort us in the places that we are rightly disturbed? And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this in our midst together tonight. And we pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. So I'm going to start here. This is maybe a little bit weird, but I'm going to try it. So Monday, we had the chance. Some of y'all were with us. We got to rent out a theater uh, and go see. We got to choose from different movies. And so we chose Mean Girls because it had been a minute since I'd seen it. And I'm really glad we did because I've forgotten how much I love Mean Girls. And I was reminded of one of my favorite characters in all of Mean Girls. It's uh, Regina George's mom, played by Amy Poehler. And if you've seen it, you know the scene where the girls show up at Regina's house. And Amy Poehler is just full-on trying too hard to be the cool mom. The mom who's too friendly with the kids, trying too hard with the kids. And she does that thing where she says, I'm not like normal moms, I'm the cool mom. And it's just, it's always really, really gets me. And I think there's a way, this might sound weird, but I think there's a way sometimes of seeing Jesus in a similar light. Not that he's the cool, cool mom, but that he's, we kind of see him maybe as, this is going to sound weird, but the cool new God. Like he's sometimes if like when I first became a Christian and was reading about Jesus and then you go and you read um, certain books from the Old Testament, it can be hard to reconcile often Jesus and what we see in the Gospels and what we might know as the God of the Old Testament, the father. And yet 
Jesus in this passage, I think, clarifies a lot and says actually what he's come to do, and especially as we're going to talk about the law tonight, is to reveal to us the heart of the Father. It's been the same since the dawn of time. And so what we're going to do is just two things tonight. We're going to talk first. Jesus does two things. One is he, he gives us a clarification, a clarification of he's not come to abolish the law, but he's come to fulfill it. And then second, he gives us a challenge that our righteousness is meant to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Pretty simple. We're, let's start first with that clarification. And what you need to know is that it's clear from what Jesus is saying that some had this impression that what Jesus was teaching with incredible authority was something new was something entirely new, as if it were at odds with the teaching of Moses and the prophets and of the Old Testament. But Jesus says, no. He says, no. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law, but rather I've come to fulfill it. In other words, I've not come to to abolish it as if it were outdated, but what I've come to do is to further it in its true explanation and application to fill it up, to fill it out for us, for you and for me. Um, the way I'm thinking about it is so, uh, so I have the privilege every February where my wife's birthday is February 13th and then Valentine's Day is February 14th. And let me just tell you, in 17, more than 17 years, I've never nailed both of them. So this year I just went in for the birthday. I didn't quite nail Valentine's. But so I went to Trader Joe's and I was looking at flowers. And if you've ever gone to pick out flowers, you know you're looking for the flower. The, the flowers that you don't want are the flowers that aren't fully, beautifully blooming. Like, you know, sometimes you look at the flowers and there's too many buds in the flowers. And I love the way that J.C. Rowell says it. He says, this is a helpful illustration for me. He says, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud, but the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. And what Jesus is doing in this passage here and what he's going to continue to do the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is he's, he's, he's showing us the flower of what God intended, the fullness of time Christ was born, the flower and fullness of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And he centers that on him saying, I've come to fulfill the law. And that's what I want you to think about. This is the clarification. What does it mean that Jesus is fulfilling the law? And there are three things you have to see about what it means that Jesus has fulfilled the law. Here's the first. He's fulfilled it in its revelatory purpose. That's a fancy way of saying part of the function of the law from all time was to show us what God is like who he is and his righteousness and holiness, what he loves, what he hates, the kind of life he's called us and wants from us to live before him. In other words, the law is meant to show us the heart of God, who he is, what he's like. And Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill that. So Hebrews 1, you know, it it says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you want to know what God is like? We simply look at Jesus. We look at Jesus in his life. We look at Jesus in his death. We look at Jesus in his resurrection, and we see the heart of God. So first, he fulfills his revelatory purpose, but second, he also fulfills the law by fulfilling its promises. He fulfills the promise of Moses and the promise especially of the prophets. So much of the Old Testament, especially the prophets, are glimpses and foretastes and promises of what the Messiah will be like when he comes. This is why Jesus, if you know the Gospels, in his first sermon, he's 12 years old. Remember his parents are trying to find him and he's in the temple and he preaches his first sermon in the temple. And he he says this, Luke records it for us. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then imagine Jesus, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's quoting from Isaiah. And he says, you remember what Isaiah was talking about? That's me. This is what I've come to do. Um, the way I th- this might sound weird, but the way I think about it, so when I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks for about two years. I was the closer. I was horrifically, if you know me, I was horrifically working the bar because I, my social skills of small talk are not strong. Literally, there's this one guy that would come in sometimes and he would ask me to make him an extra dry soy cappuccino and for the life of me, I could never get it right. So finally, one day he walks in, I'm working the bar, and he just turns around and walks out, which is still a core shame memory. Um, but one of the things we all, our manager was always asking us to do was to put out samples. And so my favorite Starbucks, I don't know that they do it anymore, was the ice lemon pound cake. And so when we put out samples of that ice lemon pound cake, I would make sure to grab a few because um, they were tasty. But what was the point? The point of, this, of having these samples out was to give you just a little foretaste of what that full slice, <laughs> this, is, this illustration might not work, but to give us a full slice of what was coming. And Jesus is saying, that's part of what it means that I'm fulfilling the law. There were little foretastes, little glimpses, and the fullness now is here. I'm here to fulfill the law in this way. And then the third thing you need to see, and this is really important as we move to the second point, is he's come to fulfill the law and its moral demands. Um, the law of God shows us what it requires for us to be in right relationship with God. It's summarized, if you're kind of thinking, what is the law of God? It's summarized most uh, succinctly for us in the Ten Commandments. That's what, that's what a life of love lived to God is, a life that is pleasing to him. It's what it looks like. It's what the, the shape of it is, the heart of it is, the, the, the substance of it is. And yet, part of what Jesus is doing is he's come to fulfill those demands. Another way to say it is he's come to live the life that you and I can't live and haven't lived. Because if we're being honest about ourselves, we are lawbreakers. We, we don't know the law of God because we don't pursue the heart of God like we should. We don't look to and cling to the promises of God that he would be really to us all that he says that he is. And we don't, if we're being honest with ourselves in our, in our moral lives and, the, and what we uh, think, say, and do, or don't think, don't say, don't do, we fall so short. It's Romans 3.23. I was just having this conversation with my son, my son today, 14. I don't know that he heard much of it, but it's all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. But then think of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And what a beautiful image as Jesus literally has ascended this little hill, this little mountain to proclaim this sermon. Jesus is the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord. He's the only one who is perfect in his righteousness. He's the only one who has full, fully lived a life that is pleasing to God. Here's kind of the point. Why is the law important for us is what we're moving into. 
Because we'll never understand, if we don't understand the law, if we're not saturated in God's word, we'll never understand the heart of Christ. We'll never understand the glory of Christ in its fullness. And we'll maybe most importantly never understand why we need him, our need for Christ apart from the law. That's part of the way it functions in our lives. I think about it like this. So uh, over the last year and a half, both of my oldest kids, uh, who are almost 16, almost 15, got their first iPhones. And uh, you're not a parent yet. You're, yeah, you're not a parent. So from a parent's position, it is a terrifying thing to put the world of the internet in the hands of your <laughs> teenagers, right? I mean, it's, it's a very, as a parent, it's a very scary thing. I don't think we're overly strict parents, but we're trying to, to do the right things. And so we had this kind of come to Jesus over Christmas, which is fun. Literally Christmas Day, we're, we're like, all right, guys, we're restricting your phones in these ways. And they're like, no. I mean, if you've never been like yelled at by a teenager, have you ever really lived? And so we were just being berated by our kids, but we were trying to show them we're not doing this because we want to punish you. We're not doing this because we hate you and are trying to end your social lives. Although, I, you know, I get their friends, parents have different standards. We're just doing this because we want you to see our heart for you, which is we don't want you to fall into, fall prey to by your own self or by others, things that dehumanize you or things that dehumanize others. And it's so hard to get your kids to see. You'll just put this in your back pocket. This is a freebie from when you're a dad or a mom. It's hard. You, you just want your kids to see that the heart of these laws, these rules, is for your good. That they might know something of their own hearts. That they might not put all of their hope in things that aren't good for them, aren't God. That they might know something of their need for forgiveness in Jesus and they, they might not dehumanize themselves and others. And of course, they're going to fall short. We've already had plenty of moments where there's things being snuck behind our backs and loopholes. And, you, you know, I mean, you, you probably lived this with your parents. We could talk. Let's grab coffee and process your parents. Um, but this is the power of the law is to expose the places in our lives where we don't really know God don't really put our hope in God, don't really see our need for him. And Jesus says, don't you dare think I've come to abolish that. Don't you dare think that I've come to take this away because if I were, you might think you could get to God apart from me. And I want you to know that I'm your only hope of real righteousness, of real right relationship with God. So first, the clarification, but then second, the challenge We'll move through this pretty quickly, but then Jesus goes further and he says something pretty staggering if you heard it. And it feels pretty hard if you're like me, because he says our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. Now, what you need to know about the Pharisees and scribes is they were pretty serious about God's law, like so serious. They had laws like three, like almost 500 altogether laws to protect the law of God. They were extremely thorough and exacting and literal in their application of the law. But here was the problem. Here was, they, here was where they were very off. Is the way they approached God's law was to make it into a checkbox, boxes you could check of relatively easy to, relatively easy to keep things. For example, we're going to look at this in the next couple of weeks. For example, when they went to the sixth commandment, do not murder they literally just reduced it to having never killed someone. Or when they went to the seventh commandment, 
of do not commit adultery, they literally just reduce it to literally never having committed adultery. And then Jesus comes along and he says, you don't understand the fullness of the sixth commandment. It has so much to say about anger. It has so much to say about your, your, your bitter anger that you carry towards your roommate. It has so much to say about the way that you treat people when you lose it and blow it on them. It has so much to say about the things you carry in yourself that cause you to boil. And the seventh commandment, it has so much to say, so much more than have you literally committed adultery. It has so much to say about lust. And how do you look and treat others? Do you ever look lustfully, Jesus says, and you've broken the commandment? All right, so it's the beginning of Lent. And for me, that means I'm just, I mean, we should be anticipating Easter. But I think sometimes in my heart, I move too fast to Easter and just right past Lent. But one of the things about Easter, as we anticipate it, that I always hate the most is the little, my kids get them every year, it's those little chocolate bunnies that look amazing, and you kind of pick it up and you think, hmm, something's not right, and then you open it up and you take a bite and it's just completely hollow in the inside. And like, that's the worst, right? Like, I mean, what, who, what, what is the point of this candy? Fill it with peanut butter, right? Fill it with Cadbury creaminess. But I think this is part of what Jesus is saying, that the, fair, the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes is like. It's like a hollowed out chocolate Easter bunny. That's a weird way to say it. But it, you, it looks impressive on the outside, but it, but it is completely empty on the inside because it's not about God. It's not about Jesus. What Jesus, when he continually challenges the Pharisees and scribes, he's saying, you're, you're presenting as if you love God, but I know your heart. Though you, he, it's the words of Isaiah, though you honor me with your lips, your heart is far from me. And Jesus is saying, what does a righteousness that exceeds that look like? It means it's solid. It means, can I say it this way? It means it's the Reese's peanut butter egg of righteousness. It, it, it's filled with goodness and it's filled with a heart that is moved of, of, with love to Jesus. And that's the simplest way for me to say it to you is if your righteousness is going to be solid, you have to wrestle with why do you do what you do? Are you going through the motions? Or is your heart fixed on the glories and beauties of Jesus? Like, right, there's a way of reading Scripture where we're checking it off a box. And there's a way of reading Scripture where we want to know the heart of God. There's a way of praying where we're checking off a box. And there's a way of praying where we really want to pour out all of our anxieties and fears to Jesus. Uh, there's a way of serving the poor. Like how many times, I, I'm guilty of this, or yeah, if we do something, we go serve in the community and then we get the group picture afterwards and we put that group picture on all of the socials. Like was it about the group picture or is it because we really have a love, we see ourselves as poor in spirit and we have a love for the poor because Jesus has a love for the poor. Um, the only way our righteousness will ever exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes is if it becomes less about us and more about Jesus. Less about us and more about Jesus, who is, let's not forget, our righteousness. Paul says that our life, even now, if we're united to Christ by faith, is hidden with Jesus at the right hand of the Father because he is ours and we are his and he is our righteousness. That means even now, the sins you brought in, the sins you're feeling guilty about, the sins you're not even feeling as guilty about as you should, Jesus has taken the shame of them away on the cross, and we stand even now by faith with Jesus, faultless and blameless, not because we are, but because we're his. And he's making us more like him, and that work is painfully slow, 
And that's another way he's fulfilling righteousness is he's making us. We are righteous by faith, but by sanctification and progress, we are becoming more like him in his righteousness. And the reality is if we don't wrestle with our hearts and the motivations of our hearts, we're going to settle for the, the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. That looks good, but is ultimately empty. Um, I don't know if you follow this story at all, but it's been a pretty painful story making its rounds around the Christian world, and it's the story of Ravi Zacharias. So Ravi Zacharias, for me, is a, uh, not a young Christian, but as a young seminarian, was a model for me. How many sermons did I listen to of ways he, with gentleness and just genius and Christ-centeredness, engaged skeptics and all kinds of questions. He was a model for me, not just of preaching, but he was a model to me of like apologetics. You know, he would come to college campuses. He never came to ones I've been on, but you would just see him engage students. And it seemed amazing. He seemed like this beacon of a man who loved Jesus. And then the heartbreak of what's come out over the last really five, six years, where beneath that facade, he was harboring a ton of sexual sin. He was soliciting pictures from women who adored him, and he would sort of start spiritually and then make that sexual turn. Uh, He owned massage parlors. He had chronic back pain, so it looked like he was just going for, you know, chronic back pain. But those stories came out of he was just sexually abusing these women. And then he was threatening them. He was saying things like, if you tell anyone, I'm going to kill myself. If you tell anyone, imagine how much damage will be done in Christendom. And we mourn. We mourn. Can you imagine being one of these women who had a man that everyone adored? Like, you remember his, I don't know if you follow this, but at his funeral, you had all kinds of Christian celebrities show up and just seeing his praises. Can you imagine those women from the massage parlor watching this man who they knew who he was? They knew what he did and how hard it would be to, to even want to be a Christian watching that. And there were these, uh, so his ministry put out this statement this week, and here's what, part of what they said, and this is what I want to kind of end with thinking about tonight. His ministry said this, they said, the findings of this investigation have convinced us more than ever of the necessity and sufficiency of the gospel. No one is without the need for a savior. Sin resides in the heart of every human being. And this was the line that got me. Jesus is the only person who is exactly who he says he is. Jesus is the only person who is exactly who he says he is and the only savior worthy of our ultimate trust and worship. What I want to close with is a, is a bit of a bummer, but there's good news. Here's the bummer. Do you feel the gap? Do you feel the gap between who you say you are and who you actually are? Do you feel the gap between what you say, and what you do. I do. I had a a parenting moment today where that gap was pretty well established. Here's what I say. Here's what I so often do. And if that's you, I've got good news. You're the exact person Jesus came for. He's the only person where there's no gap. He is who he says he is. And he says, if you belong to me, I came to save someone just like you. And to follow me means to continually own up to not just the bad things that you and I do, but the bad reasons for the good things that we do. 
And then and only then as we lean into the heart of Jesus, our righteousness, the only one who is exactly as he says he is, who has come as our Savior, only then will our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we feel that gap. We know something of our hearts, if we're being honest. We, we look at your law, and we know we fall short. And yet, Lord, would you don't, we need to be there. We'll never see our need for the good news of you until we know the bad news about ourselves. But Lord, would you, at the same time as we wrestle with the bad news about ourselves, would you lift our faces? Lord, would you, would you lift our faces to look at you and who you are and what you've done for us in your life and death and resurrection? And that even now, if we are yours, you are interceding for us for the places where there is that gap between who we say we are and what we actually, who we actually are? Or would you make us more honest about ourselves and our sins and our struggles? Would you give us that sort of fellowship and friendship together that we wouldn't be faking it and doing the facade, but that we could be honest about what's really going on in our hearts? You know it. And yet, Lord, your posture toward us is one of love. Your posture toward us is one of grace. Lord, we thank you that there is always more grace in you than there is sin in us. So, Lord, would you meet us in these ways tonight? We ask these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Would you stand and sing the doxology with us?